The sun is setting on another beautiful day in the Western Cape. It's time to kick back with a Carling's Black Label lager and some fried calamari. I'm John Golden. And I'm Sarah Rovang, and you're listening to Sundowners, conversations about architecture, place, and global travel. Hi, John. Hi, Sarah. Feels good to get out of the car and stretch our legs. Yeah, and the scenery here out on the Western Cape is a bit different from where we've been. Not so much on the lions, but these coastal birds are great. And the ocean mist is really helping to wash all of that mining dust off. Oh, come on. It's not been that bad. But it is definitely nice to be not in the car. We've put a lot of kilometers under our belt this week. Over 3,200 kilometers, to be exact. It's about 2,000 miles for our U.S. listeners. We've actually driven through six of South Africa's nine provinces and been to two mining towns and a port city before ending up here in Wilderness, a quiet little town on the garden route on the road towards Cape Town. We've spent yesterday and today actually out in nature, which has been a great opportunity to think back over the past week and what we've seen. We don't really have refined, deep lessons learned from our time on the road. Instead, we thought we'd just go over, you know, a collection of observations that, hopefully taken as a whole, gives a sense of what it's like to drive around in South Africa. So, Sarah, what have been some things that have caught your eye as you stared out the window of our illustrious Hyundai accent? So many things, both big and small. It's definitely different from road tripping in the States, but it's also interesting to see what's kind of been universal. Right. Yeah, the kind of upmarket rest stop with a new McDonald's is basically the same in Limpopo as it is in Ohio. Also, the pacing on the road, kind of watching the affluence fade as you go from the you know nice new gas stations in the suburbs out to these sort of dusty old shell stations in small towns. It feels very much like the States in that regard, too. Speaking of gas stations, the gas station attendants have taken a bit of getting used to. They're everywhere in South Africa. And, you know, they'll fill up your tank and wash your window for a tip. Usually, we've been doing about three rand or 20 cents. They'll also check your oil or tie pressure if you ask. Most of the time, they've been perfectly professional. And I guess it is a good way to create jobs here. Right, which is something that's desperately needed. But unfortunately, there have also been a couple of times when this whole swarm of attendants comes out and starts doing all of this stuff to our car, and then they all want a tip. And so it, it can be a bit overwhelming just going to the gas station. Yeah, the South African economy really places a heavy emphasis on tipping, and that's really not something I enjoy doing. Um, Ideally, I think an economy should be set up so that people are paid a living wage and you don't have to go depend on tips to make ends meet. But as you mentioned, these tips are, I think, a really important part of the income for many folks. So, you know, definitely happy to support people. No, of course, but it, it certainly has been a change from the U.S., And speaking of cars and tipping, the parking attendants have also taken a bit of getting used to. Yeah, and this is another job that has been created by the people, really with no oversight at all. So in South Africa, anywhere you go to park, there will be an attendant who will help you find a spot, help you park your car, then watch your car while you're gone, and then guide you as you back out again. And, you know, again, we've heard you want to tip somewhere in the 20 cents range for this service. I get the sense that these parking attendants are, in most cases, just kind of anyone who has a reflective vest and has staked out a claim on a row of parking spaces. 
So the sort of services rendered has been very different depending on where we've been. Yeah, there was the super aggressive wash your car without asking and then charge you for it in Pilgrim's Rest, which we'll talk about later. But then there have also been plenty of perfectly nice guys. Right, yeah, and only men for the parking attendants for some reason. Yeah, and I don't know how much they actually deter car theft or whatever, but it is in some sense a job, and interacting with these attendants has been a very interesting and new part of driving a car here. So this has actually been the third big trip we've taken where John has been the sole driver and on the left side of the road. First off, John, thank you so much. Also, I'm just kind of curious to hear how you feel it's going at this point. You know, driving on the left has been fine this trip. The main problem is that I still occasionally turn on the windshield wiper instead of the turn signal. But so far I haven't gone the wrong way down a road or anything like that. I remember the road trip in New Zealand, which was my first time driving on the left, being much scarier. Well, that's good that you're feeling more comfortable now. Although, some of the destinations have been a bit uh, more off the beaten path, I think, than we expected. Yeah, and I think we got a bit unlucky there, honestly. And really, I blame Google Maps. Rather than taking us on the nice big national highway that goes directly from Johannesburg to Kimberley, it sent us on another route that, while technically shorter in distance, involved like 45 minutes on an awful, awful dirt road. Not to mention the numerous times it has gotten the location of buildings wrong. Yeah, so Google Maps has not been doing great on this leg of the trip. It'll be interesting to see how it does in Japan and Chile. South Africa does seem particularly difficult with respect to those dirt roads, because even relatively prominent local roads can spontaneously turn to dirt for long stretches. As was the case with our drive to Hogsback, which we talk more about in our newsletter. Another crazy thing on the roads here is that people go super slow. It's totally different from the US, where almost everyone is basically driving the speed limit, if not higher. Here it's rare to see someone driving the speed limit at all. And the speed limits are pretty low to begin with. Most highways kind of top out at about 100 kph, which is roughly 60 miles an hour. And the worst have been the semi-trucks. They are never at the speed limit and are usually way below it, like 40 kph. Obviously, it's good for them to slow down on the hills, but even on flat ground, they go super slow. It honestly has felt pretty unsafe. Definitely. And there are often cars that will just be going like two-thirds the speed limit for no apparent reason. I mean, sometimes it will be an older car that maybe can't go so fast, but we've also seen plenty of nice newer cars going kind of scarily slow on the highway. So you've gotten a lot of practice passing cars on these single lane highways. Yeah, and, and actually one nice habit of drivers here is that they'll often scoot over to the side to make passing easier. And then it's customary as you pass them to sort of flash your hazard blinkers to say thanks. And then the car you just passed will flash their hazards as if to say, you're welcome. That we picked up on this custom after watching our Uber drivers do that and asking them about it. And I think it's a nice thing. Yeah. Also, as someone who pays a lot of attention to the built environment, I've really been enjoying the lack of billboards on roads here. Oh, definitely. Me too. Yeah, I think both England and New Zealand also had basically no billboards. Makes you realize how awful and intrusive they are in the U.S. Although, while there may not have been many billboards, there have been plenty of other... Mm, shall we say, unexpected things on the side of the road here. The most prominent of which have been the pedestrians. People here seem to treat the road as much more of a usable space here than in the States. So you really have to watch out for hitchhikers, or a shepherd walking across the highway after an errant goat, or... 
Yeah, and the whole hitchhiking culture here is totally different from the States. And I think this is clearly another remnant of apartheid. Definitely, you know, keeping all of the black workers outside of the cities and forcing them to commute, but also not giving them nearly enough money to buy a car, still has really had a lasting and very prominent effect on people today. So one workaround that people have come up with, since there's not really public transportation outside of the big cities, are these minibus taxis that sit maybe like 15 to 18 people. Yeah, and there doesn't seem to be any central dispatch for these. They seem really loosely organized, kind of continuing this theme of local community solutions to many of the problems facing the black communities. So apparently you hail these taxis with certain hand signs. So in Soweto, for instance, three fingers up means you want to go to the neighborhood of Orlando West, and three to the side means Orlando East. The drivers see those hand signs, and then they can decide if they can fit you in with all of the other people they've already picked up. Our guide in Soweto was telling us that these are still the most economical way of getting from Soweto to downtown Joburg, which is a journey that has basically remained unchanged since the apartheid era. Yeah, and I think he said that these taxis cost about 7 rand, or 50 cents, as opposed to the new city bus, which cost twice that. Right, so you see these taxis everywhere, both in cities and in rural places. But you also see plenty of regular cars stopping to pick up hitchhikers. And the hitchhikers here clearly come from a much wider economic spectrum than in the States. Here it's just, you know, regular people going home from the mall. So, yeah, I think one thing that we've taken away from all of this driving is how much the car has been a nexus for many of these bootstrapped, community-organized opportunities for economic development here. Yeah, and, you know, despite how weird or occasionally uncomfortable these jobs and customs have made us feel, I'm definitely in favor of what people have put together here. You know, the car is such a powerful modern representation of freedom particularly in South Africa, where the right of movement has been severely restricted for so long. So I think there's the basic economic aspect, as well as some potent symbolism. And this, of course, ties into the other striking feature of the roadside landscape here, the townships. Absolutely. So quick history recap here. Under the Group Areas Act of 1950, all of the races had to live in separate locations in every city in South Africa. This meant in practice that all black Africans were evicted from their homes and existing cities and forced to live in what were called townships outside of the city. The quality of housing provided in the townships can vary quite widely, but it's fair to say that for most people who were relocated, this was a definite downgrade. Access to clean water and sanitation seems a pretty consistent issue everywhere, although we've noticed that most townships are at least electrified. But, you know, these townships are still really everywhere in South Africa. They didn't just go away when apartheid ended. But, you know, as we discussed when we talked about Soweto, it seems like there are actually quite a few people who have decided to upgrade in place and put up new, better houses as they have the funds to do so. Although, as we mentioned with the minibus taxi system, there are significant economic disadvantages to living far away from the city center. Yeah, it really has added a different dimension to the experience of South Africa to just even see these places from the side of the road. For instance, we drove through Grahamstown the other day, which is the home of Rhodes University. If you didn't know about the townships lying just at the periphery, it would be really easy to mistake Grahamstown for a picturesque English college town. Yeah, and overall I think road tripping where we have has really shown us some of these things that you'd miss if you were just flying from Joburg to Cape Town, or if you were only driving to the well-worn tourist hotspots, such as the garden route where we are now. The townships in particular, and many elements of the road trip in general, 
are unavoidably a reminder of apartheid, and the fact that legislating equality is not enough to undo the damage wrought by violent segregation. Which certainly is an appropriately somber note to end our talk about the road trip, but I would be remiss if I did not also heap praise upon that most crucial element of road tripping in a former British colony, the roadside savory pies. Oh, so good. They're just fantastic, and so cheap. It's like 50 cents for a hot, buttery chicken and mushroom pie. The perfect hot lunch on the road. Anyway, at this point, folks are probably wondering why we electively spent so much time in the car last week driving to such remote places. Industrial heritage, that's why. Kimberley and Pilgrim's Rest are arguably two of the most important early mining heritage sites in South Africa. They were on my must-see list, so we kind of designed this trip between Johannesburg and Cape Town in order to see both of them. But they're also really different in how they are being run and managed today. Yeah, I'm actually working on a big multi-part series for my blog about these two sites, so I don't want to give too much away. But I thought we could at least give listeners a sense of what it was like exploring both of these places. So by way of introduction, Kimberley was the site of the first big diamond discovery in South Africa in 1866, and Pilgrim's Rest was the home of the first South African gold rush in 1873. They are the first and second towns in the country to be electrified, respectively. Kimberley actually had the first electric street lighting in the entire southern hemisphere. So the attraction today at Pilgrim's Rest is the old sort of company town. It was owned and managed by a gold mining corporation for almost a century, which means that a lot of the buildings remain the same over time. And at Kimberley, the main attraction is the so-called Big Hole, the site where all of the open pit diamond mining first took place. There's also a recreated historical village and a museum attached. And actually both being industrial heritage sites is about where the similarities between Kimberley and Pilgrim's Rest end. I guess the first really obvious difference was just the geography of the two places. You know, Pilgrim's Rest is up in a region called the Highveld. It's part of the Great Escarpment on the east coast of the country, the area where the central plateau descends down to the Lowveld, which includes Kruger National Park. Yeah, so Pilgrim's Rest really feels like it's up in the mountains. Lots of winding roads and logging activity nearby. The area around Kimberley, on the other hand, is totally arid and flat. Very different biome. So John, I'm, I'm just curious, what was your first reaction to Pilgrim's Rest? I don't know, it felt really disorienting. You know, we got off the main road and suddenly there was this parking attendant waving us down and saying, this is it, this is the town, this is what you're here to see. And yeah, we were in this low-density area that seemed to have some historic buildings, but not a lot going on. We didn't really see any other tourists, so we drove up a little further and located something that seemed at least like a legitimate visitor center of some kind. And there we at least saw a handful of other tourists. So we parked and got out and walked around. The historical town of Pilgrim's Rest is basically on two long roads, uptown and downtown. And some of the buildings house small museums about early life in Pilgrim's Rest, and others have businesses like bars and cafes catering to tourists. Yet other historic buildings are actually occupied by the residents of Pilgrim's Rest. So most of the building stock is original, which is pretty impressive, actually. And the bulk of it seemed relatively well-maintained. Which was actually kind of strange, because every other indicator pointed to this as being a town that had fallen on hard times. 
Yeah, it seemed clear that tourism clearly isn't bringing in enough money to support the people living there. We visited on a really pleasant Sunday afternoon, and during our visit saw at most a dozen other tourists altogether. And most of the other visitors were clearly most interested in Pilgrim's Rest Graveyard, which at least from an aesthetic standpoint seemed to have the most universal appeal. Yeah, and there just didn't seem to be you know, any central organizing force uniting all of the various little museums and shops. It just felt very piecemeal. That was definitely true even of the visitor center, where there was a relatively new set of text panels next to dioramas and interpretation that were clearly several decades old. And most of the new interpretation actually just focused on a few key stories, most prominently on how the Boers used Pilgrim's Rest as a makeshift mint during the Anglo-Boer War, which was interesting, but it really didn't provide any connection to the architecture and the built landscape that had been preserved in the town, the things that are ostensibly the main attraction. And the residents we interacted with were just trying to make a living in what is clearly a struggling place. One of the big ways for residents to make money now is to wash the cars of people who come to visit Pilgrim's Rest without getting permission first, and then charge you for it when you return to your car. We felt lucky that we got away with only a window washing, for which the parking attendant charged us about $1.50. So after visiting Pilgrim's Rest, I wasn't really sure what to expect at Kimberley. Yeah, me neither. And it was very, very different. So Kimberley was clearly designed as this whole visitor experience. Everything was really choreographed. We had a private guide who showed us the big hole and then took us in a fake elevator down to a facsimile gold mine. It was kind of hokey, but one of the things I liked about it was how enveloping the audio experience was. This was actually the first interpretive site that we've been to that really seemed to be making full use of audio as a tool. Yeah, the sonic quality of the underground chamber was really impressive. You could feel the vibration of the lower frequencies. And there was a simulated dynamite explosion featuring a lot of sound, which again seems kind of hokey, but it certainly got our attention. Yeah, that was great, and we actually got a recording. Don't worry, we've turned down the volume compared to what we actually experienced, but this should at least give you a taste. The experience of being, quote, underground was convincing enough that I actually felt pretty disoriented when our guide then led us directly out onto the main floor of the museum. And the museum was really impressive in a lot of ways. Clearly, a lot of time and money went into the exhibition design. And then we actually had the chance to see what was clearly millions of dollars of diamonds in the museum. That was the only part we could not photograph. And after a brief tour of the museum, we were shown a 20-minute video about the history of Kimberley's mining industry. You'll hear more about that in a second. And finally, we had the chance to wander through Kimberley's historic village. Architecturally, it actually felt similar to Pilgrim's Rest in some ways. Same kind of late Victorian ornament, corrugated sheet metal walls. However, in addition to all of the sort of touristy attractions that were in the village, you know, period rooms, an old bowling alley, and so forth, there were actually buildings with programs that were more oriented toward the residents of Kimberley. We saw an active culinary school and a boxing gym, for instance. There was also a little pub called The Occidental that had a number of local customers in addition to the tourists. 
We actually returned there later in the evening and recorded a hot take of our initial impressions of Kimberly. We're going to share a five-minute excerpt with you now. The audio quality is not great because, well, we recorded on an iPhone in a bar, but it does a good job of capturing the feeling of the place. Anyway, Sarah, so what are your, what's your hot take after visiting the big hole and accompanying uh, edifices? Um, well, for one thing, you know, it's clear to me how money affects interpretation and preservation. Um, just the sort of production quality on some of the things that we saw today was... Uh, pretty dramatically higher than a lot of other mines or sort of mining heritage sites we've been to. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It was it was kind of stupendous how much money there was. I mean, there was even like a vault where you could go and see what I'm sure were millions of dollars of uncut and cut vi- diamonds. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was clear that. Um, and just like also seeing the number of employees around here yeah. who didn't have much to do because um, right, it's the low right. season. Um, yeah, it seemed like um, money was not really an object, although as we saw also, money does not really buy you like a good curatorial experience. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess my, my overall feeling from going through the... Um, museum portion of the experience was that there were actually quite a few displays that were quite nice on their own or like had a lot of merit um, in terms of the content but it didn't really like hang together as a coherent thing no yeah definitely was yeah it was just really weird sometimes what they were focusing on what they weren't focusing on um there was not again any kind of clear narrative other than sort of standard like wild west yeah kind of booze swilling crazy diamond guys well what was really interesting to me was that um you know from the the standpoint of analyzing industrial heritage um all of the focus of the interpretation was really strongly on the pre-industrial history of this mm, site. That's a really good point. Including, there was this extremely high production um, value video that we watched that was like 20 minutes long. And so weird. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it covered sort of the, the time frame from the discovery of diamonds here in the 1860s up until like 1881, at which point like the... They basically cut it off as soon as the mine consolidated and De Beers owned the whole thing. So you didn't get to see any of the aftermath, what happened actually during that period of monopolization and industrialization. So, yeah, the fo- like all of the focus was on this kind of romantic period where there were a bunch of different claims owners. And in that early period, um, when the mine was primarily uh, under British control, black claim owners we saw were allowed on the site and so it seemed like there was an effort to kind of play up this sort of you know early more egalitarian period yeah and that that was interesting in the movie they tried to have they tried to paint it as sort of having those two parallel stories one of a of a white journalist from london coming to observe the kimberly mine and the other storyline was supposed to be this um 
like the, the native African who was coming to work at the mine to, to create wealth for his tribe. And but I think this ended up ended up spending like eighty percent of the movie on the white guy and twenty percent on yeah. the black guy. And yeah. it was kind of a they clearly just wanted to talk about the the great white men yeah. who consolidated De Beers and yeah. that kind of initial struggles and yeah, the whole exhibit was very little on the uh, not only the plight of the the native workers at the site but also the ways in which um, you know the powerful mining interests shaped uh, laws in South Africa that really kind of accelerated into apartheid in terms yeah. of separating out the workers from the owners and this is all you know basically to keep the races separate yeah yeah that's right so after doing that hot take I'd say we had two big takeaways from Kimberly. First, when a heritage site depends heavily on corporate funding, that can really shape both the nature of the experience and the narrative of the interpretation. And second, Kimberly is really an industrial heritage site that in its current iteration, at least, is focusing almost exclusively on its pre-industrial past. In my coming blog series, I'll talk a lot more about the current and future prospects for Kimberly and Pilgrim's Rest. Both have actually been recently removed from South Africa's list of tentative UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So I'll look at what that means and what lies ahead. And we're actually headed now to one of the three remaining South African sites on the tentative UNESCO list, the farms of the Cape Wine region. Yeah, I'm really curious to try to piece together for myself, based on observations of all of these sites, why South Africa decided to delist all of its mining sites and keep the buildings of the winelands on. Well, that seems like a good place to leave things then. As always, we want to hear your thoughts and suggestions for future episodes. Also, do you have any questions for us? We are thinking of doing a listener question and answer segment in a few weeks. Whether you're curious about how expensive a bottle of wine is in South Africa... Spoiler alert, it's cheap! Or you want to hear more about the historical aspects of what we've seen, we welcome all your questions. Our theme music is by Mark Barrett. Other audio recordings this week are from our own field work. Happy trails, listeners. <laughs>